This past Thursday, February 2nd, we celebrated that most unusual of holidays known as Groundhog Day, where a series of reasonably intelligent people pull a rodent from the ground, and based on the thing which he observes or doesn't, his shadow, they predict the meteorological events for the next six weeks. Now, if you weren't aware of that, uh, Puxatani Phil predicted that we were going to have six more weeks of winter, and never have we all hated a groundhog so much. <laughs> Why I bring that up is because that particular day always reminds me of one of my favorite movies called Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day, if you don't know it, is a, is a really hilarious movie about a weatherman played by Bill Murray who relives the same day again and again and again and again. And as you watch it, you first begin to crack up with the hilarity, and then you begin to realize, wait a second, this is my life. It's the same thing happening over and over and over again. Now, that can be a good thing, or that can be a very harmful thing depending on how you look at it. In, uh, in the examination of your life, my guesstimation is that you do a lot of things the same way again and again every day. Your brain is wired that way. A man by the name of Charles Duhigg wrote a book called The Power of Habit. And in that book, he writes a lot of things, but one of the things that he explains is the science of the brain. That the brain is wired to be very, very efficient. And one of the ways in which it does that is the formulation of neural pathways. I don't want to get too deep into the science, but basically the pathway from neuron to neuron within different parts of your brain that have to be achieved to do certain things. And every time your brain has to learn something new, that, that's stressful for the brain. So the, one of the things that the brain learns to do is develop those neural pathways quickly and try to make them in the same way. So that when you're doing those things which you have to do often, it's not as stressful. Steve mentioned driving this morning. Now, he mentioned how you drive and then you get there and then this is weird because you're just there. You don't remember any of the lights, or the turns, any of that. Do you remember the first time you got behind a steering wheel and, and sat between two to four tons of metal surrounding you and pressed on the accelerator? Do you remember what that was like? I mean, white knuckles, paying attention to everything, noticing everything. Every, every mirror was perfect. Everything was, was on your radar immensely. That's because your brain was learning. You probably also found that experience very stressful. And yet the more that you did it, the brain said, well, we can get better at this. And now you just get in the car and you do the thing and you go. That can be a very helpful thing for a brain that can be a very dangerous thing for a soul because that works in good habits and in bad habits. Our theme for 2017 is the light of life. And as we start today, one of the things that we're looking at is kind of how to walk in the light. And we're doing that by looking at this series that, uh, that I'm calling Habit. How we take the very small things that we do so that they impact the big things in our lives. I hope that uh, we can think about how your habits are truly ingrained in your life.
My guess is that you drive the same way to work every day. My guess is that if you don't have the exact same thing for breakfast every day, eggs and toast, breakfast of champions, then you get a little stressed. My guess is that you like to use the same kind of laundry detergent. You eat the same kind of cereal. You buy the same brand of bread. Why is that? Because they're necessarily one better over the other? In your opinion, yes. But in your brain's opinion, what's really happened is there you've formed a neural pathway. This is true in all areas of life, especially at church. Today, when you drove in the parking lot, even though you had to drive very slow, my guess is you parked in about the same spot that you always do. Huh? I park where the holy people park on the far west side of the lot. Park backwards, which is the right way to do it. My guess is that you came in at the same door. You probably started talking to the same people. You very likely sat in the same seat that you've always sat in this morning. And if someone were to come out to ask you to move from that seat, you would be stressed. If the preacher said, let's all stand up, go ahead, stand up. Now, see, at this very moment, you are very stressed. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to ask you to move at all. I will only do it to illustrate the point. When you try to break the neural pathways of the mind, you get very stressed. Everyone can have a seat except for this group right here. Go ahead. This is one of the cool things about where you are. Kind of one of the cool things that I miss is that your brains are still mushy enough that your brains haven't been fully formed. Your neural pathways haven't been developed yet. And so when you go to school and you ask your professor, why is that question? And your old crotchety professor says, because that's the way it is. Neural pathways. And you go out and start a billion dollar company because you ask a question in a different way. You come to church and you, you go and you do things and you go, why do we do things that way? And people that have been doing it a long time get upset and they say, because we've always done it that way. And you go out and start a multi-megasite church because you ask a question in a different way. It's one of the most exciting times of your life to be where you are because your pathways haven't been formed. It's also one of the most scary times of your life because your pathways are in the process of forming. And the thing which keeps your parents up at night is which way are those pathways going to go? We want to pray for you and hope that you'll keep your pathway aligned with God, but always ready to do what he needs you to do, and maybe by asking a different question in a different way. Now you can sit down. They're not nearly as stressed. They appreciated the stretch this morning. Good habits are very important. You can go to bed early, you can stay up late. You can eat healthy foods or you can choose to eat junk food. You can read your Bible or you can binge watch on Netflix. Those habits impact who you are. Aristotle said many, many centuries ago, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. In this series, we're going to look at five habits 
that will help you in your walk with Christ. The bad news is that bad habits are hard to break. That means you're going to get uncomfortable. Uh, The moment I asked you to stand this morning, I could see scowls going across faces. Why? Because I'm asking you to do something uncomfortable. And that's not something you can help either. That's your mind saying, I don't like this, this is new, this is, this is hard, this is, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, that's what I'm saying about habits. As we look at these, if you choose to push through them, you'll find yourself a stronger Christian. But I'm, I'm warning you, your mind is wired against you. You're going to have a hard time because it means breaking the thing which you're used to doing. Bad habits are very powerful, and they're powerful just as, uh, just as powerful as good habits. Angie Bachman was a wife and mother of three. Uh, she was, by all accounts, lived a very normal life. While her husband was at work and her three children were at school, she began to get somewhat bored as a housewife. And so she made the habit of once a week, just for a treat, taking a little bit of her extra money, her mad money, and going to the Harrow's Casino. It wasn't a big deal. Actually, she got pretty good at it. And uh, she began to win quite a little bit to the point where she had to go every Friday. And then her parents came down with some health problems, and that stress was so heavy on her that she did it to relieve stress. And, And instead of just going on Fridays... She went on Monday and Wednesday and Friday. She was doing this all in secret, and uh, she went about $20,000 in debt. And she realized she had a problem. Harris did too, and so they did the moral thing, and they extended to her a line of credit. She began to go again and again. A couple of years after that, her parents actually passed away. They left what was intended to be a legacy to her, a blessing to her, an inheritance of $1 million. And, of course, I hardly need to write or say the rest of the story. But Angie Bachman, five years after her parents had left her all of that, had lost everything, not just the $1 million inheritance, but the assets of her family and her house as well. You see, habits are powerful. They can work to help us achieve good things. They can also destroy us. This morning we talk about holiness. Holiness now makes a lot of people very nervous. If I ask you who do you think of as holy, you probably say, my grandma and my preacher. And I'm not so sure about the preacher. When we talk about holiness, we're saying this idea of doing good enough and being good enough and making a list and doing the right, living the right kind of way. But I think that is a misunderstanding of what holiness is, so we need to talk about this this morning. First, holiness starts with God. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, the prophet wrote this, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah, the prophet, encountered this in a very real and personal way. In fact, if you are following along in your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 records this very holy encounter of the prophet Isaiah. 
starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, their feet, and another two while they were flying. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth. Is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And what is the prophet Isaiah's, who, by the way, is a holy, God fearing man? And when he comes into the presence of the Almighty God, here's his response Woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's a very simple point, and that is this. God alone is holy, and you are not. And just in case you need to remind yourself this morning, uh, just look to your neighbor and tell him, I am not holy. Isaiah wasn't either. What he needed was the atonement and his guilt to be taken away and his sin to be atoned for. You can't even... You can't even begin to conceive in your mind of God's holiness. Isaiah tried to describe it in Isaiah chapter 64. And when we would take the teens to camp or Winterfest, uh, there was always at the end of every trip what I called the pile. Mike's the only one here who knows what the pile is. The pile is all of the leftover stuff that teens forget. I was sure there should have been naked teenagers running around somewhere because there were so many clothes left behind. iPods, uh, MP3 players, blankets, towels, clothing, etc. And you'd bring that pile in and set it on the room of the teen floor and say, this is what is left over from camp. Now, in a, that's a poor example, but the best one I can think of. Isaiah says that your righteousness is like filthy rags. Nobody wanted to touch the pile. <laughs> no one wanted to claim anything from the pile. Even the teens that owned the stuff in the pile was like, I'm not touching it. When you think of God's holiness, the prophet Isaiah says... That your righteousness, your holiness, what you try to achieve on your own is like that pile of filthy rags. It is so disgusting compared to the righteousness and the holiness of God. Now, why do I tell you that? So that you understand that it has to start with God. It cannot start by your own efforts. Now, you think, well, this sounds a lot of Old Testament. Is it really that important? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. 
Hebrews 12:14, the writer there says, "Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy." But pay attention to the last part of Hebrews 12:14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. How on earth am I supposed to achieve that? If you just told me that my righteousness is like a pile of dirty laundry, if, the, if the, my good works compared to the righteousness and holiness of God pale in comparison, and then Hebrews twelve fourteen says, without holiness, I can't see the Lord, seems like we've got a problem. And you're right, you do. This is why you need a Savior. You need a holy Savior. Because he was holy, you can be holy. Because he atoned for your sin, you can attain holiness. Your holiness comes through Christ alone. You cannot be holy without him. Being in Christ is the only way to have the holiness of God. And uh, for purposes of this lesson, I call that positional holiness. Meaning, once you're in Christ... You're declared holy. You're declared righteous. Uh, this is what Peter says about it. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, when, when he's talking about holiness here, Peter's writing to a people who often mess up, who often fall short of the holiness and the glory of God. But he's reminding them that through Christ, they can be holy. Another way of saying it is he's reminding them of who they are by virtue of whose they are. Uh, most every day I drive my son to school, and what, regardless of what we talk about, as he gets out of the car, I say, Tyler, who are you? And he knows by now, I'm a levering, I'm Tyler, and I'm dad's son. I want him to remember those things every day, to remember who he is and whose he is. Now, of course, because he's a Christian now, he's not just my son. He's his son. When Peter reminds us of this, he's telling us whose we are. Uh, if you want to turn to first, uh, I'm sorry, second Timothy chapter one, verse nine. This won't be on the screen, so you have to look it up. Paul writes these words. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done. Oh, catch that. Won't you catch that? He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Positional holiness in Christ, which is the only way it happens, okay? 
by, by being in Christ, faith, repentance, baptism, and then you are in Christ. Then, once you have positional holiness, that produces practical holiness. And this leads to our second point where holiness works in you. You'll have to advance it, guys. Holiness works in you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Usually we get that backwards and we think, well, I just got to try harder. I just got to do better. I just got to do enough right things. I need to sign up for more ministries. I need to be more involved. I need to, to try to live better, a better life so that I can be holy. But you have that backwards, you see. You have to be positionally holy in Christ. And when you are positionally holy in Christ, that produces practical holiness in your life. It sounds hard. It sounds hard. But the good news is you do not have to do it alone. And this is what I love about when you are in Christ, you're made holy and you're not left alone. First Corinthians chapter 6. Now in the context, he's talking about sexual immorality, but he says this beautiful sentiment. In verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body, which they were using in in unholy ways, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, you're not holy by yourself. But his holiness is within you if you're in Christ. That's such a beautiful picture. His holiness resides in you. You understand that for so long people had to go to a place, whether they had to go to the tabernacle or they had to go to the temple, they had to physically go to a place to be near the holiness of God. And now, in Christ, you become the dwelling place of God. So they say, well, we come into here. We will. This is not a holy place at all. This is, an, this is just a space. The holiness that comes in this space is when you're in it. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the exciting part about it is, here in just a few minutes, when the preacher wraps up, you're going to get up out of here, and you're going to leave, and the holiness of God and the presence of God is going to go to where you work and where you go to school. The holiness of God will dwell at a gas station or a restaurant or with your friends. The holy presence of God living in you isn't just restricted to a place, but now it's with a people. And so we ought not forget whose we are, but who dwells within us. Now you can look at your neighbor and say, I'm not holy, but he is. Oh my goodness, that was the, that was the most unenthusiastic holiness I've ever heard. Let's try it again. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not holy, but he is. 
and he dwells in me. Now point at him and say, and you too. This is how Galatians 5 means so much. Listen. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You say, well, I don't know if the Spirit lives in. Well, I mean, we know we, the Spirit indwells at baptism. My question is, if you're yielding to the Spirit, you'll know it by the fruit of your life. What kind of fruit do people see from your life? Do they see love? Do they feel joy? Do they, feel, do they understand your patience and experience God's goodness? When the Spirit dwells within you, things happen that are more powerful than you. The, the, ver, the, the way of saying it is you get a better version of you. When your world falls apart and yet you have peace that passes all our understanding, the Spirit is dwelling within you. When you feel strong and courageous in very scary circumstances, the Spirit is dwelling in you. When you can lovingly love someone who is so unlovable, the Spirit is acting in you. When you say something smarter than you, the Spirit is acting in you. When you have joy beyond all understanding, in the middle of all sorts of stress and trouble, the Spirit is working in you. When you can be humble and gentle towards someone who is being a total jerk, you have the Spirit working in you. First Thessalonians 5.19, Paul said, Do not quench the Spirit. Yield to Him. Let Him work in you. Let Him make you a better you. I love this story Zach Pericolosi told me. Zach's a pretty new Christian, and uh, he's come a long way. One of the things you know about Zach is if you have any sort of conversation or relationship with him, you know that Zach is a worker. He works his heart out. He works as hard as he can because he wants to provide for his family. And he does that in an honorable way. And he, uh, he lost a job. And he wasn't too happy about it. And it wasn't really his fault that he lost the job. It was some other extenuating circumstances. But the boss brought him in. He said, I need to let you go. And uh, he thought for a minute. And he just looked up. And he smiled. And he shook his hand. And he said, I just want to thank you for the opportunity. Now, Zach said, if you had known me before... Before I knew Christ, I probably would have cussed him out. I probably would have got angry. I probably would have blew up. But something happened in me that wasn't of me. Something happened in me. And I was able to be respectful and shake a man's hand and be grateful for the blessing that I had the job in the first place. Oh, I wasn't happy about it. But you see, the holiness the holy presence of God was working in Zach that day. So with each sermon, I want to give you a habit, something to work on. And this is the habit I want to give you this week. It's not doing a bunch of good things. Remember what, what drew Isaiah into the holiness of God was being in the presence of God. And so that's what I want to challenge you with this week. I want to practice, want you to begin practicing time alone with God.
Now, practically, what does time alone with God mean? Uh, some people say, well, I just, you know, go and find some solitude and put on some nice music and light some candles. Some people say, well, I like to go out in the woods or go fishing or hunting, and that's my time with God. But on, on a practical level, time with God is communion with Christ. And when that happens is in the Word. In the Word, John seventeen seven says, sanctify them by your Word. Your Word is truth. So don't just find solitude, although that's important, but be present with God in the Word. Hear His voice in the Word. Call to Him in prayer and begin to ask the Spirit to work in your life to make you a better you. Isaiah 26 says this, You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord your God is an everlasting rock. Now, out of the abundance of these private, holy moments with God will overflow the holy moments of God in our thoughts, our words, our relationships, our behavior, and more. In the New Testament, James said, come near to God, James 4.8, come near to God And he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. When you come into the presence of God, and it's just you, and you're reading his word, and your mind is meditating on the scriptures, and you're, you're calling out to him in prayer, as you draw near to the presence of God, you become deeply aware of your own iniquity, your own shortcomings, just like Isaiah did. Woe to me from a man of unclean lips. But in that moment, you should also have peace because God will draw near to you. And as he has always done to show mercy and grace to those who love him and to those who seek him. So I want to challenge you this week. Now, I'm I'm sort of part millennial, so this is how my brain works. But... Um, I want to challenge you right now to get out your phone and set an alarm on that phone. Now, kids, let me tell you of a day when people had these things called alarm clocks that you didn't carry with you. They were strange. Okay, set an alarm on your phone, set an alarm clock. I don't care how you do it. Mark it on your calendar. But set a time each day. When you will intentionally, purposefully spend 10 minutes with God. Yeah, if you want to spend more time, I think you will. But spend 10 minutes to intentionally, purposefully draw near to God. And the scripture says that when you do, he will draw near to you. Uh, This morning, I hope that you are beginning to learn some new habits. And with this habit, our first one is holiness. And that only comes through spending time with God. But I hope you didn't miss the fact that you cannot have holiness by yourself. You need a Savior. And if you have not been uh, expressed faith in Christ, if you've not been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we'll help you do that this morning. Or if you've done that, but you've sort of lost your way in your walk, you've gotten into some bad habits that have 
messed up your thinking and messed up your time with God. We'd love to help you and encourage you. If you'd like for us to pray for you, we'll be glad to do that as well. Whatever your need might be this morning, please come. We'll help you as together we stand and sing.